0: welcome you to Doxodeo Hatfield, a multi-ethnic family on mission, passionate about Jesus, passionate about community, and passionate about serving the city of Chuanca. like a, like a Hetfield, if you can grab a seat and you can open up your Bible in the same breath, you can open up your Bible to the book of John chapter 1. So John 1 verse 1. As you're doing that, some context. So this man was this aged and battle-scarred Christian. And for the last 50 years of his life, he had been introducing people to this Jesus And over these years, he had seen thousands and thousands of people come to new life as they met this risen Jesus. And so in his heart, in the last couple of years of his life, he had this this stirring, this burning passion that others now would come to learn what he had seen, what he had experienced. And he wanted to write it down, and no one was more qualified than him to write it down. So inspired by the Holy Spirit, carried along by the Holy Spirit, And with a heart to say, not only do I want to see people now for the first time encounter this life in Jesus, but I want to see Christians. I want to see them re-engaged and reinvigorated by this man, Jesus. He wrote, under the inspiration of the Spirit, what we now call the Gospel of John, the good news according to John, the fourth of these four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And at the end of this letter, this book, this biography of who Jesus is, he writes the following. He says, this is my aim in writing about his life. John 20 verse 31. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. He says, that's why I'm writing. That's why I'm giving the last portion of my life to account what has happened. And it's often been said when people read the book of John, the gospel according to John, they come away with, especially Christians, almost saying it feels like I've met Jesus again for the first time. This book has an incredible, incredible power in introducing people to Jesus that have never known him, And reintroducing Jesus to Christians, to a place where they say, man, I'm awed once again by who he is. And this is the heart behind it. John says, I want people to come to know Jesus so that through faith in him alone, they would now find peace and joy and hope and purpose. But from that, they would start nurturing a life where they begin introducing other people to Jesus so that they would experience now joy, peace, life, and purpose. Friends, this is Christianity, to know Jesus and to make Jesus known. This is the whole picture. And often this is what we would call evangelism. You know, we should tell other people about Jesus and shout them down or whatever your picture of that is. But the word evangelism from this Greek word, eangelio, literally just means good news. We are to be good newsing people. And our heart is that everywhere we go, this good news needs to capture us. And therefore the early cry, the war cry of the earliest followers of Jesus in evangelism, you know what it was? Simply this, come and see. John chapter 1 and John chapter 4, you're going to see that they are calling to their world. I have experienced as a witness who this man is. All I'm saying to you today is come and see him. Come and see him for yourself. And so over the next couple of weeks, we are going to preach high level through the book of John. And we are trusting that in this year that Oxford family has said that we want to, and the first three of these focuses of ours against our wall, faith that reaches the lost of our city, this is where we want to camp around. And say, so can the book of John, the most evangelistic gospel in the New Testament, can it come and introduce people in this season to who Jesus is? But maybe for you, if you're a Christian here this morning, can you be today reintroduced and over the next many weeks to Jesus? Can you come to a place where you are just awed once again, just stirred once again, just in love with Him once again? See what He has done afresh in your life and say, I want to invite others to come and see. And over these nine weeks, I'll speak about it a bit more at the end. We've got a whole bunch of things planned. One of them is that we're going to do a nine-week mini course on what it would actually mean to become a witness like this. A natural, supernaturally natural life where I'm just very naturally introducing others to who Jesus is. And over these three weeks, we're going to have these three statements constantly in our mind. Every Tuesday morning, we're going to release one of these, and the community groups are going to work through them. And it's just saying very simply, you don't have to be, have a PhD in theology or become a missionary or you know, be this highfalutin Christian It's simply these three things, to grow in love with Jesus, discover your design in Jesus, who has he made you to be, and thirdly, just introduce others to Jesus. This is what it means to live the kind of life where people are constantly called to come and see, as to just fall in love with him again, grow in that love, to discover your design that he's made you uniquely for the area and place and time that you find yourself in, and just begin this journey of saying, God, I want to introduce others to you. So if we had to preach this whole book, it would take at least a year. So we have to take it in big chunks. So today is the mother load of big chunks that I wish we could spend seven sermons on, but we have one. So one of the reasons, if you open up to John verse one, one of the reasons why the gospel of John and the ancient church was associated with an eagle, one of the reasons was that this opening chapter literally goes to heights of philosophy and theology and thought and heart and mind that is so deep, that I'm telling you guys, we could spend the next nine weeks on just these first couple of verses. So we have to pick and choose today and be very picky and needy. I think there's one beautiful thing that I want you to walk away with. So let's read together. John 1 verse 1. "'In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and all things were created through Him, and apart from Him, not one thing was created that has been created. And in Him was life.'" And that life was the light of men. And that light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. Verse 9. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was created through him, and yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent or of the will of flesh or the will of man, but of God, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we observed his glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 16. Indeed, we have received grace upon grace from his fullness. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth Come through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the one and only Son, who is himself God. And at the Father's side, he has revealed him. Phew, all right. (laughs) There's a lot in there. And I'm sure there's a lot that we could speak about. But I want us to just see one thing this morning. John goes out of his way to make a big point here. Because in the time of Jesus, the Greeks living around him, had this belief that behind all of the universe and all of creation, there is something of an order. There's something of a rationality, something that's keeping everything kind of in its place. And they called this the logos in Greek, the word. And they said a well-ordered life is when you contemplate this big order behind everything. This is the purpose of life. Now, listen to what John says. He says, in the beginning was the word, the logos, and the word, the logos, was with God, and the logos was God. So John deliberately borrows this philosophical Greek phrase, speaking to the Greek people of his day, and he says that logos, that thing behind everything, he says that thing was with God, was God. It was at the beginning. And you can see his Greek audience kind of you know, nodding their heads. Yeah, yeah, that's very mysterious and profound. The thing behind everything was at the beginning. It was there. It's ordering all of it. But now look at what John is doing. This is scary stuff. He says... He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him. So he he like pushes these Greeks like one step too far because he says that order, that thing behind everything, it's personal. That thing is not a thing at all. It can be known. In fact, he is the one to create all things. He is the one to whom it all points. And at that moment, the eyebrows would have been at maximum height in the room. What are you saying to us right now? And then he drops this bomb. He doesn't just drop the mic. He throws the mic into pieces when he says this. That word, the logos, became flesh and it dwelt among us. And we observed his glory. He shocks his audience like, what? The logos, the reason, the all of it, behind all of it, not only is it personal, it has actually come to us in the one thing we understand, flesh and blood. He says this well-ordered life, it's not just contemplating the big order of all things. It's not just having these deep philosophical discussions and thoughts and, and, and actions around what is behind all of it. He says it's a person to be known. A well-ordered life is not found in thinking about something. It's found in knowing someone. He says the purpose of life is not just sex to be had or money to be made or a career to pursue or philosophy to be understood or a body to shape or ideas to ponder. It's a person to encounter. That's the purpose of life. And when you truly encounter, John says, this person. He says, something connects back into your soul at the deepest level of who you've always been. And that's why C.S. Lewis so famously says, when we come to the scriptures, the Bible, he says, we don't come to them to learn a subject. We come to be steeped in a person. And that's what we want to do. So verse 14, if we just ask the question today, every sermon in the series is gonna be just in the form of one question. If you ask today, maybe your friends, colleagues, family members, maybe your own heart is just saying, listen, I get it. Lots of Christians in our country, lots of Christian people maybe growing up around me, but seriously, what's the relevance of Jesus to my life? Let's be honest. What relevance does he have in 2022 to my life? I just want us to camp around this one verse, verse 14, that famously says, The Word became flesh, secondly, that he dwelt among us, and thirdly, that we observed his glory as we try and answer that question. So, first up, the Word. Became flesh. So what relevance does Jesus have to your life this morning, to the people of our city, to our country, whether in KZN, whether in DeepSluid, whether sitting here, whether in your house or in your office? I would say this, that in Jesus, God can be known. He can be known. So at the beginning, it says here, In the beginning, Jesus was the word of God. He is the word of God. Now, would you agree that a person's words are the clearest expression of who they are? Do you agree with that? Let me give you a trivial and then a more serious example. So, trivial example. Let's say you are getting to know someone. When I was just getting to know Shay, when we started dating, before you really speak to them like heart to heart, you just kind of infer things. You just study them. You look at them. You try and figure out who is this person. So if I, for instance, just looked at my wife and I saw often drinking tea, but also drinking coffee. I'm like, I'm, I'm trying to figure out how does this work? How can you be a tea person and a coffee person? Doesn't make sense. So now I'm like, I'm gonna have her over for a date at my place. So what I'm gonna do is I'm just gonna put both out, like tea and coffee, because I'm not sure. Is that what you would do? No, you would phone this person. You would speak to them and say, listen, do you want coffee or do you want tea? And then my wife will say, listen, I will drink tea if I really have to, but I love coffee. I love it. It's like the opposite of Jillian, basically. She will will drink coffee under threat of life, but she loves tea. Why? Because I can say I know about a person. I can infer things about your life. But when I engage you in speech, now I'm getting to know you. It's the truest expression of who you are, your word. Let me give you a more serious example. So in the mornings I've seen now, whether it's in the gym or when I drop off the kids at school, there are people that literally now for almost a couple of months, I see the same people every single day. You have that like in your workspace, you, you walk past the same people, maybe the, the taxi that you get, it's always the same kinds of people around you. So my thing is, I've realized that I, in my own mind, have gotten to know some of these people. I've never spoken to any of them. But I see them interacting with people. I see the way they frown at certain things, the way they're like very busy and intense. Some of them are jovial and they're laughing. Some of them are really, you know, we have to get the kids, just throw them out of the car and drive on you. Know, others want to spend half an hour just kissing their kids and bye and you will see you later. So I feel like I know some of these people. But if you ask me, do you know her? Do you know him? I will have to say, I've never spoken to any of them. So I guess I do not know them. It's only the day if you ask someone, do you know that person? They are asking, have you spoken to that person? Then I say, I have come to know this person. So listen to what John is saying. John is saying that Jesus is the word of God. (laughs) That's a massive statement. Why? Because he's saying that apart from Jesus, you cannot know God. Yes, you can know about God. Of course, all of us can know. All of us do know about God. Every person, whether on an island or here in Pretoria, we know about God in our guts, in our hearts. In fact, you can know a whole bunch about God. You can even believe in the existence of God. You can even do a whole bunch of things in service of some God. I'm not saying you cannot know about God, but John is making a bold statement and saying, but you cannot know God apart from Jesus. Why? Because John is saying that Jesus is the ultimate revelation of who God is. He is the word of God. And maybe people say, and maybe you say that, maybe your colleagues or friends say that. Listen, I I want to believe that this Christian stuff is true, but seriously, you're going to have to give me full proof evidence. I need a slam dunk argument. And my issue is, can I just maybe take us back to a couple of weeks ago when we said, friends, when we spoke about doubts, there is no such thing as a slam dunk argument, a a watertight case for almost anything in life. I told you about um, John Lennox. He's the the emeritus professor of of mathematics at at Oxford, also PhD in philosophy there. And he says, in my field of maths, you can have hard proof about something, irrefutable proof. But he says, in the rest of life, all the beautiful things in life, relationships, beauty, religion, ethics, philosophy, love, the law, arts, you do not work with proof. You work with what's the best evidence, what is tugging at you, what's calling you in a direction. I said to you a couple of weeks ago, prove to me that the couple that have been married for 50 years, prove to me in a laboratory that they love each other. Prove to me that this poem is beautiful. Prove to me that rape is evil. Prove to me that you are not a butterfly dreaming about being in church this morning. Prove that to me. You cannot do it. And so God says, I did speak rationally to you. Why? Because this word that he uses, he says, Jesus is the Logos. That's actually where we get our word logic from. John is saying, if you want to understand who God is, you have to look at Jesus. He is the logic of God. So what is it saying? God says, listen, I cannot prove to you that Jesus is who he says he is and Christianity is true because I'm not going to give you a foolproof, a watertight argument. I'm going to give you something better. I'm going to give you a watertight person you will never be able to wrestle to the depths of your soul with some kind of argument, some kind of philosophy, some kind of teaching or path, the five pillars that you need to apply to your life. But he says, I'm going to do you one better. The one thing that we understand more than anything else, I'm going to give you a watertight person. And if you look at him, if you see him, if you are captivated by him, you will find me. So what does that mean, friends? It means that you need to look at Jesus. If you want to know if Christianity is true, you need to look at Jesus. Look at the accounts of his life. Look at his teaching. Look at his lifestyle. Look at his integrity. Look at his character. Look at the accounts of his resurrection. Look at the absolute change that happened in the people and the culture around him. A man with no army songs, books, no influence, and most of the world worships him today as God. If you look at this man, I believe with mind and with heart, Have you ever taken it that seriously? Have you looked at this Jesus? I believe if you do it with an open heart, I absolutely believe that his spirit will come and awaken you to who God is because he is the word of God. You will never know him more personally. You will never have the depth of your heart answered in a way that brings peace and joy and hope and purpose than in Jesus. Have you taken it that seriously? Do you want to know God? Do you want to be known by him? Do you want to personally experience him? If you ask me, what's the relevance of Jesus to my life? Friends, I say there is no greater question of relevance in the world if there is a God. And we have purpose and meaning and hope in this life. John says, look at Jesus. But secondly, he says, the word, yes, became flesh. (laughs) This is crazy. This is when the Greeks, when the eyebrows are really high. What? The Word became flesh. So what relevance does Jesus have to your life today? Not only in Jesus can God be known, but God can be trusted. He can be trusted. It says the Word, the Logos, was made soft. (laughs) It was made squishy. It was made fleshly. It was made vulnerable. It was made killable in Jesus. Friends, Christianity is so radical. You cannot even lay it on the cards of other religions and philosophies. It is so radical because it says that the divine creator of the universe became human and vulnerable. Think about that. He came down. Now, there's this very famous incident in New York. So many books and movies have been made about this. It changed the culture of that city. 1964, 28-year-old Kitty Genovese, she was going home to her apartment, and she was suddenly assaulted by this man in the street. And she starts crying out as this man tries to hurt her. And as she's crying out, she she screams out, he's stabbing me, he's hurting me, help me. And the lights in the apartment start coming up around her. And initially it looks like people are kind of looking what's happening and they're seeing this happen. But no one does anything. They just leave her. And she's crying out, he is going to kill me. And they do nothing. And initially when this guy sees the lights, he runs away. Because he thinks someone is going to come and help, but no one comes. Why? Because they know they are going to put their own life at risk for this woman. No one comes, and a couple of minutes later, he comes back, and he brutally kills her. Absolutely horrendous and horrible moment. In fact, this is where the whole thing of the bystander effect in psychology comes from. The more people observing, the less anyone actually takes responsibility. It's collectively shrugging our shoulders, saying, wow, that's really sorry for you. No one came down. Do you hear what John is saying, friends? John is saying when God, when the ultimate reason and logic behind the universe, the, the creator, the transcendent one, when he heard the cries of mankind, of sin and brokenness and rebellion and death, and being under sin and the enemy as we were hurting one another and ourselves and our planet, as we were spiraling out in our depravity, when he heard the cries, he came down. And not in the way that those people would have come down from the apartments. Maybe I will risk my life. He came down fully knowing that in Jesus he would give his life for us. He came down for you and for me. In fact, Hebrews 2, I love it. It draws out this idea. It says this in verse 14. Now, since the children are flesh and blood, though they have that in common, Jesus also shared in these. So that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest. To make atonement at one. To bring together those things that have been separated for the sins of the people. And since he himself has suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. The writers of the Hebrews are saying, if God has become flesh, friends, there is no one that better understands where you are today. There's no one that you can trust more than this Jesus. Because not only has he created you, I believe, not only was he the word, but he's the word become flesh coming down for you. In fact, Isaiah in the Old Testament, when he would look forward, he sees something of who this Jesus will be, and he calls him what? The wonderful counselor. (laughs) The wonderful counselor. Why would you do that? Why would you call someone a counselor? And we know this. If you've ever had counseling or a good friend as an ear for counseling, the best counselors are those who have gone through things themselves and they've experienced a sense of healing and now they can bring other people along. They are the wonderful counselors because they've been in the trenches. What is it saying about Jesus? It says that he is the one who fully understands who and what and where you are. Because he has stepped into it. You can trust him. You know, in primary school, I, I broke my collarbone playing rugby. And then, stupidly not having it healed properly, the first time I played again, I broke it again. And even worse the second time. So that second time, I had to get a plate. And it was a long story. But I'll never forget sitting next to the field in this little chair that the, that the ER guys had there. And as I'm sitting there, the nurse wants to try and take my shoulder pads off of my, of my, my head like this. If you know anything about collarbones, like to do this while your collarbone is broken, it's not very comfortable. So, and this thing is like basically with sweat and everything, it's like tied to my skin. So, he tries to take it off and it's so painful, excruciating. Years later, in high school, I'm playing rugby and a guy in my team, he breaks his collarbone. I'll never forget just the reality of seeing him having to sit in that chair next to the field and realizing I have been there. I get it. I cannot take away the pain, but I can come in right next beside you. I can come and counsel and hope and just be there. Friends, the Bible is saying that this transcendent God has been in the chair with you. He has been in the chair, friends. Christianity is saying something no religion dares to say. That the greatest conceivable being has become fleshly, has become vulnerable, has become breakable for love, for redemption, for at one So friends, have you ever been betrayed? So has he. Are you broken at the moment? So was he. Have you ever felt ignored and cast out? So was he. Hunger, loneliness, homelessness, grief, rejection, betrayal, torture, injustice. God has been in the chair. This is the kind of God you can trust. Not a God who points to the way, but who says, I am the way. You can trust me. You can trust me. And even if you say, listen, Joe, I hear you. And that's very nice. But I have prayed. I have trusted him once. I prayed and he was silent and he ignored me. In fact, it felt like he abandoned me. And I get that. I've been there often and I will be there again. But do you know that even that Jesus has experienced? You say, what? Has Jesus experienced abandonment by God? Yes. Because in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed to his father and he said, Father, if there is any way for us to, to save mankind from itself without me having to go into the very the more than the mouth of death itself and carry this horrific, this, this weight of sin and brokenness and death on me. Please let this cup pass. And in that prayer, he realized through that silence, no, let your will be done. So friends, you need to frame the suffering and the hurt of your life through the lens of a God who comes down. I'm not saying you have to understand him. What I'm saying is you can trust him. That's who he is. So finally, it says, yes, the word became flesh. But it says he dwelt among us so that we could see, experience his glory, his doxa So what relevance does Jesus have to your life? I believe this, that in Jesus, not only can God be known, not only can he be trusted, but he can actually be experienced in Jesus. Guys, if you're reading this verse in Greek, we are missing something in English, And it's pretty astounding because John the writer, he could have chosen any word to speak about the fact that God has now come to reside among us. He could have said, and the word, the logos, you know, flesh and blood, he's come to reside among us, to live among us, to stay among us. But he did not choose any of those words. He chose one specific word. He said, this flesh, this God man has come to tabernacle among us. (laughs) That's That's a weird phrase. The tabernacle, this great tent structure of the Old Testament, he says he has come to tabernacle among us. So John deliberately goes to the Greek translation of the Old Testament and he says that moment when Moses and the people are in the wilderness and they've set up this tabernacle space, that's what Jesus has come to do. Now just to make it exactly clear, he says in verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we observed his glory. The weightiness of God, everything that God is, we have observed it. What happened? Moses is on the mountain, and he says to the father, God, I want to experience you. I want to see you. I want to touch you. I want to know you. And what does God say to him? He says, show me your glory, God, Yahweh. And what does God say to him? If I do that, you are dead. (laughs) If I show you my unadulterated glory, you fried. So here's what we'll do. You build the tabernacle, this great, as you are moving through the wilderness, you have the structure that you put up and we will have rituals and rites and priests and sacrifices and there will be a space behind this thick curtain, there I will make temporarily my glory known. But it has to be separated because if you just go in there, you, are barbecue. you will barbecue, you will not survive this. I am not just like something else you know, I am like nothing you understand. I cannot show you my full glory. So there's a separation between you and me. Now, do you hear what it's saying here? It's saying the exact opposite. (laughs) It's saying now the very thing that Moses and the Israelites could never experience, you are going to see in its fullness in this man, Jesus. So what does that mean? Two things. It means that Jesus is the end of religion as we know it. He's the end. There's a pastor who has this great little interaction, fake interaction between a Christian in the first century and a pagan neighbor. So the pagan neighbor, one day, they're like mowing the lawn or something. I'm guessing in the ancient East there were no lawns. But let's just say they were going to Kauai or something more relevant like that. And he says this pagan neighbor speaks to him. And he's like, hey, man, I hear that you're like a, what's it called, a Christian, like those Jesus guys. That's great, man, like one of these new religions. So tell me, like, so where's your temple? How does that work? Where's the temple? And the Christian says, no, we don't have a temple, because Jesus is the temple. He's our temple. The guy's like, what? How does that work? Okay, but then if you don't have a temple, where do, the, where do the, the, the ministers and, you know, where do all these guys who stand in between you and God, where do they do their work? Where do all those guys who make the sacrifices, where do they go? And he says, no, we don't have that, because Jesus is our minister. He's like... I don't get this, how does that, so what about the rituals and the sacrifices that you need to make to carry favor from the gods, to try and speak to them, to get them to bless you? Where are those sacrifices? He says, we have no sacrifices, because Jesus is our sacrifice. (laughs) This guy would be like, dude, seriously, what kind of a religion is this? That's the answer, no kind of religion. It's not like any kind of religion, because religion says, if you do, then I will bless you. But Christianity says, because it has been done, you can receive his blessing. (laughs) Religion says, if you commit, if you give, if you strive, if you understand, then God will bless you and love you. But in Christianity, it says, in Jesus, through faith in him, you are loved and blessed, and therefore your life can be transformed. It's the end of religion. He says he is the tabernacle. But the second thing is it's, We can just ask the question, how is it even possible then? How can the thing that Moses never could even get into, how can that now be revealed to us in Jesus? And the answer is this, friends. Just hear my heart for a moment. I think we've all experienced this. If you ever had a life-altering injustice or evil done to you, we know what that feels like. And we know that that person who did that to you, we know that for a long season, relationally, there's, there's something of a gap. There's something of a brokenness. You know, when I was in primary school, I, I once with a friend, we were riding our bikes to go and get garage pies, which is still a thing. When, you're, when I had the kind of body to keep that in check. Um, and I drive on this, the sidewalk and suddenly this guy with his long jacket, he just jumps in right in front of me and he grabs my handlebars. And in a split second, it feels like a million years, and one second all at once, he pulls out this knife, like big knife. And he swipes at me, and in that moment, I almost just kind of fall off my bike. He misses me, he gets on the bike, and he just drives away. And I lay there, these these women standing close to us, they're like, phone your dad, phone your dad, and he's just casually, you know, riding away with my bike there. I cannot tell you how that moment for years as a young person scarred me. This guy was about to stab me for this bike. Just the brokenness again of our country and society and history, it just hit me, but I realized if this guy and maybe the person who did something horrendous to you, if they just came and said, I'm sorry, you know, you know in your guts, it doesn't make it all right immediately, does it? It feels like there's a distance. Something needs to come and make this right again. And we're never even sure what it is. You walk around with something that's happened to you. Maybe you did something to someone else and you feel what, what can close this gap? Now, what the Bible is saying is profoundly the following, that that gap in relationship is infinitely small compared to the gap in relationship between mankind and God. Because the absolute injustice and evil, the absolute rejection of the image of God, our relationship and our responsibilities, the evil that we do to one another, to ourselves, to this planet, the absolute rejection, the depravity, the skewing of our humanity, it has caused this gulf between God and man. And what brings that back together, friends? What mends that? And so when it says the word became flesh and tabernacled among us, the tabernacle is the place of sacrifice. Here's what it means. Jesus Christ, God, came to earth in vulnerability, in fleshliness, so that he could pay that price so that he could come and mend the brokenness so that he could give himself so that on a tree he could say bring upon me all the death and brokenness and hurt and rebellion all the injustice the depravity the bring all of it upon me and i will deal with it finally so in the old testament what is the glory it's smoking mountains and it's pillars of fire and, and it's consuming but at Christmas time, what do we do? We sing about the fact that the unscalable majesty of God becomes a baby. Because a baby is approachable, a baby is soft, a baby is you, you can you can come right next to it. Because that God has come right into where you need it most. Friends, I want to say that if you ask me, what's the relevance of Jesus to my life? Can I, just, can I just put it bluntly? There is nothing more relevant to your life. There's nothing more relevant to this city, to this country, than Jesus. Because in him, I believe, I cannot prove this to you, but I believe, I believe the evidences for this faith is good, but I believe that this man is a type. <laughs> and I believe that when you look at him with an open heart, you will see that God can be known, he can be trusted, he can even be experienced. So can I just leave you with just this thought to say, friends, if anything that I said now was even sort of true, do you realize that it puts you in such a corner (laughs) and me? Because the kind of man in history who says, I come to forgive sins, no man can do that. (laughs) A a man who comes to say, I come and reconcile God and mankind, no no man can say that kind of stuff. So a man who says that puts you in a corner because you either have to say, I reject this fool i run away from this evil self-deceived devil or I fall before him and say come and restore me and command me but I cannot take the easy road of saying what a good what a good dude what a good story what a nice religion I cannot go halfway with Jesus either he is everything or he's nothing and with that, I want to say, friend, if you have something in your heart at the moment that is so broken, that is so hurting, go to him and trust him. Because in himself, he has exactly what you need to heal. In Mark 2, remember that moment where they, where they lower the man who's paralyzed into, into that room where Jesus is? Before the man has said anything, he's paralyzed. It's kind of obvious what his issue is. Jesus says to him, What? You are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Before he heals him, he says, your sins are forgiven. He hasn't said anything. Why? Because at the deepest level of that man's heart, there was this unspoken guilt and brokenness. And Jesus knew exactly. He said, in me, you will find healing. Trust him. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, I pray this morning that we would come and see the next couple of weeks will you so stir us again holy spirit make jesus alive to us again and i pray that we would be so stirred that our words and our life would become altered in the way we live it so that it's full of jesus words full of your of your hope full of your vocabulary full of your teaching and your grace full of your actions but i do not want to be more of myself i want to be more of you and we pray that as a church and i pray that for my heart i prayed for every person today In jesus name